Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Jason Pfeiffer. And this is Jen Miller. And we are authors of the new novel, Mr. Nice Guy. And if you want to learn how to build relationships instead of just network, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with our good friend, Travis Chappell. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep on listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. What's up and welcome back to another episode of the Build Your Network podcast. This one is going to be a really great one. It actually is with a power couple. We have a power couple coming on the show today. They are actually an author power couple. So both of them are writers, Jennifer Miller and her husband, Jason Pfeiffer. Jennifer is an author. She's written a few different novels and she is a journalist writing for different publications like the New York Times. Jason has been a journalist for a really long time. He's worked as an editor previously at Men's Health, Maxim, Fast Company, so many different uh, really well-known publications. And now he's currently the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, which I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a pretty big deal in the entrepreneurial world. So they came together recently and wrote a book called Mr. Nice Guy. It is a novel, which if you want to learn about that, you'll need to listen to the the rest of this episode because we uh, definitely give it a really big shout out and talk about what's in that book for a little bit. But we also talk about how to balance business and relationships. We talk about how to sell your book to a publisher. And we also talk about networking, surprise, surprise, how networking helped them land their book deal. So they've done a lot of fantastic things and impressive things separately. And now they're coming together and wrote this novel together, Mr. Nice Guy. So I can't wait to share that content with you guys. But before we get into that, I'm happy to announce the beginning of my new mastermind, Build Your Network Dynasty. A dynasty is defined as a series 
families of members of a family who are distinguished for their success, wealth, etc. If that doesn't define what we're about to create with this movement, I don't know what does. If you have ever been interested in joining up with a mastermind, I implore you to go to buildyournetwork.co slash dynasty to apply to be a part of this movement. This isn't just a regular mastermind, people. This is a dynasty. So trust me, you will not want to miss out on this. I like to reward action takers. So pricing is always best for those who jump on board early and who jump on board first. This is the most affordable product or service I've ever put out there. So there are already over 20 people in that group and did that on purpose so we can really, really blow this thing up. So stop hesitating, take action, be a part of the dynasty. Head over to buildyournetwork.co slash dynasty to apply and I'll see you on the inside. And now without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jennifer Miller and Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Super, super excited to have you guys both on. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, of course. Of course. It's, it's my pleasure. I've um, been looking forward to this one for a while. So let's go ahead and jump right into this because, man, there's just so much content to cover with both of you guys here. I was really excited to get on this call with both of you. So let's go back to childhood. Talk to me about how you were both raised individually. Oh, man. Big question. Big opening question. <laughs> Started it off strong, man. Started off strong. <laughs> well, I guess I'll take it first and then Jenga. Yeah, I mean, we both have fairly similar stories of childhood, I suppose, which is that we, you know, we're both very fortunate to come from really loving and supporting parents. And we grew up in different areas. I, I well, now like I'm summarizing both of us. I'll just speak for me. But we both do grow up. So uh, I grew up in South Florida and my dad's a dentist and my mom did a whole bunch of things. She was a art therapist before I was born and then art therapist. Art therapist. Yeah. yeah. What does that what does that mean? exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you work with, I mean, in her case, she worked with children to get, uh, use art to ha- enable them to express themselves in ways that they couldn't do verbally. And then she, she was a uh, stayed home with the kids, but she also then got really involved in a lot of local organizations and, and became very much a kind of a nonprofit supporter. And now is a guardian ad litem among other things. So she's, she's really very invested in community. And, and I think I took a lot away from, from my parents in terms of I mean, I think that their support for me and the many different things that I explored in my childhood enabled me to feel confident, you know, d- diving into what is really a very challenging industry and, and world. And, you know, I mean, it took a while for me to zoom in on the particular kind of things that I do. So I started out just thinking I wanted to be a writer, which is very abstract. And I, you know, I, I know that not every, I mean, I talk to people who aspire to be writers and not every family gets it. And yeah. of course, also the pathway to making a living off of that is not clear at all. And <laughs> I, you know, I'm very, very fortunate that I came from the kind of family that supported that along the way until I, I was really able to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the creativity that is involved with writing came a lot from your mom who taught a lot of art? No. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Um, and no, well, I, I mean, no, because my, uh, it's like I have a sibling. My sister is not really in, in a creative field. I mean, she's okay. a speech therapist. So, uh, you know, I, I really don't think that you just kind of pick up what your parents do and it sinks into you. I don't know where it came from for me. I, I mean, I was, I think that in a way, what it came from if I had to just completely armchair psychology, it was that I was a very alterna kid. You know, I really mm-hmm. felt very, I defined myself against the mainstream. And I think that when you do that, you are really also always looking for ways to articulate your worldview and what you believe in, perhaps more so than 
kids who feel like maybe the, the world already speaks for them. And I found, I tried a lot of different kinds of expression. I mean, yeah, I yeah. was, you know, I got into music too, but I, I found writing to be the one that I, I was able to get my head around. Got it. Got it. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So what about you, Jen? Like, where did you grow up? And then how were you kind of raised into that same question? Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., my dad worked for the State Department on Israeli-Arab negotiations, which uh, meant that, you know, as a role model, a very, <laughs> a very unique and different type of thing that I saw growing up. He was always... He, he was a civil servant, uh, but he was always traveling and uh, really, you know, consorted with a lot of high-level officials and would tell these crazy stories about, you know having dinner with Yasser Arafat and yeah, uh, imagine. Watching, yeah. watching baseball with Yasser Arafat at Camp David. <laughs> and, uh, and so I grew, and I grew up around a lot of journalists as well. Uh, my mom also worked in non, did nonprofit work. She actually worked for an organization called Seeds of Peace that does conflict resolution for mm. Israelis and Arabs. So that was kind of the family business, you know, how, wow. how we like to joke about it. So it was a very cosmopolitan upbringing. My parents were also very supportive of my creative pursuits. I think in part because they saw that I was horrible at math and science. And so they didn't really have a choice. (laughs) But they, funnily enough, they always were pushing me to go into journalism because they thought that that was how I would be able to make money as a writer, which is just really funny. Ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, there's basically no money in a writer as a writer, no matter what. 
form of writing you do. And so I was actually resistant to that for a really long time. I just wanted to be a fiction writer, but I came around (laughs) in the end. And so now I do both. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. But I would definitely say that Certainly, you know, watching my father's example, kind of always were always working, always on the job, always on call, you know, which in some ways, you know, wasn't easy for us as, as a family. But that ethic of like your of like what you do, just kind of being absorbed into your life as who you are, yeah. that's very much a part of now how I approach my career and also how Jason approaches his career, even though he didn't exactly have that same parental modeling, but that's kind of what draws the two of us in a lot of ways, what draws the two of us together. I wouldn't exactly say that we're workaholics, but we have the same drive and the same level of ambition. And I think that's part of what makes our relationship work. So when you say they push you to do journalism, was this something that you like went to college for? Was this like high school? Hey, I think we think that you should pursue journalism or was it after college? And they were like, you got to make some money doing something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was really after college. I became a journalist by accident. Actually, I had written a novel for my senior thesis in college and it was so that that conflict resolution program that I told you about, I participated in it as one of the few American kids. They have a summer camp. I'd been there as a camper. I'd been there as a counselor. And I ended up writing kind of a nonfiction novel about it for my senior thesis in college, which I then ended up selling as a non straight nonfiction book because I couldn't sell the novel. But I found an editor who was like, why don't you write about Israeli and Palestinian teenagers for real? Like not invented ones, but real ones. So I got a, I ended up getting a book deal, moved to Jerusalem and spent a year traveling around Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, following teenagers and young adults. And that was journalism. I had really no experience. I just figured it out as I went along which is really also what happened with Jason, you know, working in local newspapers and working his way up. So, so that's really kind of how I fell into it. I did end up going to school for it. You did. You of, said. I did. I, I did okay. a master's in journalism a few years after the book came out, really because I was, couldn't exactly figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so they were like, just go to journalism school. I think they were really hoping I'd get a full-time <laughs> job at a publication, but that didn't happen. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, so, so Jason, coming back to you, where were you during this period of, of your life? Were your parents pushing you to college? Was that kind of like the only way out, in, so to speak, in, in your family growing up? Or was it something that they pushed you towards? Did you really want to do it? Talk to me about that. Yeah, they, I mean, push doesn't feel like the right word because it just was kind of a given. I I mean, neither I or my sister questioned that we were going to college. So I wouldn't say they, you know, it wasn't really push so much as it was facilitated towards, you know, and I I never questioned going to college either. It's, It's funny, I get asked a lot now from students and in the entrepreneurship world about whether people should be going to college, which I honestly, until I got into the entrepreneurship world, I didn't realize was a subject of conversation. I just didn't realize people were questioning that. But of course, they are. And you've got the Teals trying to fund people away from college and all sorts of stuff. And for me, I was never... I never liked structured education. I don't look back upon my grade school or my college experience and think that anything that happened while sitting in the classroom was ultimately valuable to me. Now, of course, there's no way to quantify that. There was lots of stuff that sunk in that I couldn't identify as a specific memory, but that helped build me into what I am. So I I realized that there's like a level of privilege in being able to dismiss that stuff 
But when I think of the most important moments in shaping the passions that I have and the interests that I have, they were really within, they were often within a school environment, but they were not the actual based classroom education. So there were a bunch of clubs and stuff that I was involved in, in in high school. And then the big one was in college, I became involved in and then ultimately took over the student magazine. And that was what taught me the foundation of the stuff that I think that I, I use today. It was all in that student magazine. And there was no magazine class. You know, there was no faculty advisor. It was a completely independent operation where just students are teaching students. And it was, I mean, I made a lot of garbage, right? I mean, I I made a lot of mistakes in that magazine, but I think that the most important thing that happened was just having the opportunity to do it. Like you have to, if you want to do something, you have to have the opportunity to run through it and make all the mistakes because you're going to make all the mistakes. And the most fortunate among us are, are able to kind of get through and make those mistakes when it doesn't really count so yeah. that when it does start really counting, you're up to speed or at least more up to speed. Right. Okay. But if I could actually jump in on that, I mean, yeah. writing, you know, so we wrote this novel together and writing a first draft of a novel you're producing something that has never existed before and you are going to make all the mistakes, (laughs) you know? I mean, there's no way not to make all the mistakes. The mistakes actually help you figure out where you're going. And, you know, I think for a lot of writers or people who aspire to be writers, you know, they, or do to any creative pursuit for that matter, they're afraid of starting because, oh, they don't know how to do it. They don't know if it's going to be any good. And like, when we were writing Mr. Nice Guy, like we didn't, we'd never, I mean, my other books were more literary fiction. We'd never written commercial fiction before. We'd never mm. written this book before. And we made a lot of mistakes and yeah. it helped us figure out where we were ultimately going. Yeah. But I mean, I think that there's so much substance to that because I, you know, I was just having this conversation with my wife yesterday. I think it's unbelievable to me how often that holds people back from pursuing what they want to do. They think that they have to have all the knowledge, that they have to have three different degrees in this certain field before they can try to take some action and pursue what they want to actually accomplish. And uh, I think that a common denominator with a lot of the people that I've had on the show, including you guys from what it sounds like, is you just like get into it and you take action and then you figure it out. You jump into it and then you go, okay, what did I do wrong last time? How did that blow up in my face? How can I avoid that this next time? And then every time you do it, it gets better and better and better and better and better. So it's fascinating that that's how you started in your journey as well, Jason, like coming from just jumping into the high school magazine and being like, hey, what do I do here? Like you said, no advisors. There wasn't a faculty member that's helping you through the process. It's just like, this sounds interesting. Let's figure it out. And uh, it seems to have worked out fairly well for you. So um, coming out of high school, going into college, what were you studying? And then what'd you do right afterwards? Yeah, that's totally right. You have to create those opportunities to fail and work towards your first failure. Like that's where you really discover what you're made of is once you work towards your first failure. And I'll answer your question, but first, just to kind of continue the thing that, that, you know, what what Jen was saying was like, you know, we had to, in making all the mistakes that we made in this book, like we we also worked towards a first failure, right? Which was sending it around to a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of agents and everyone saying no. And and then I was having to like sit back and and rethink a whole bunch of stuff to get it to the yes. Like Mm -hmm. that's, you have to go into something knowing that it's not going to work the first time and you don't actually know what the end point of the failure is. So you have to just keep going until you actually get to the success. So what did I do? I mean, well, after I graduated college, I got into, um, Jen had alluded to it, I got into community newspapers because I had at that point determined that I wanted to get into journalism. 
I had absolutely no connections. I did not want to get into community journalism, but I saw no other avenue. There was no other avenue, right? Mm. And what there was were local Massachusetts newspapers, which is where I was at the time because I went to college in Massachusetts. And they were hiring community newspaper reporter for $20,000 a year. And I took one of those jobs at the Gardner News. And it was uh, dreadfully boring. Uh, it, was, <laughs> you know, it was like just writing about nothing for nobody. And I, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was ego and soul bruising. But now that I look back upon it, I can say, one, I learned a lot, like things that I have built upon today, even today, that started back in that experience. But two, I really thought of myself as better than that place. And that showed. I definitely was not a popular person in the newsroom. <laughs> because I, you know, here everybody's in the same place, everybody's working for the same place. But you got this one jerk who seems to think that he's a lot better than it. But you know what? He's not, because if he was, he'd be somewhere else instead of here. Right. So and I wasn't, I just didn't have that, I just didn't have that level of awareness. So I, I like if I had to do it over again, I would not be such a I would not be so so self-righteous. But at the same time, I did push myself to quit that job because I felt like I could do other things. And quitting that job and then sitting in my bedroom for nine months and pitching, cold pitching out into the world and getting a story in the Washington Post and the Boston Globe and Associated Press, like those kinds of, that really was what moved my career forward. So so I, you know, I like to think of it as now it's a, what I advise uh, people in, in a situation like that is to balance, and not just that situation, any situation, is to balance patience with impatience, right? I'm like, I, I had to be patient enough to understand that all the things that I wanted were not going to come to me immediately, mm -hmm. but also hold on to that impatience because the impatience is the thing that will propel you forward, that will make you take the risks that will allow you to leap, you know, take multiple leaps. I mean, had I, had I not pushed myself, the pathway was really tiny paper, somewhat larger paper, somewhat larger paper, somewhat larger, right? And we could have done that until now, right? Where I right, would be in right. some size paper somewhere. And I am very, very glad that I pushed myself to skip all those steps. Yeah, totally, totally. So there was never a point during that time when you were like, oh my gosh, this is so boring. Did I choose the wrong career path? It was mainly like, no, I know I'm in the right career path. I just got to like find a different vehicle. Yeah, well, right. I knew that I liked the fundamentals of what it was that I was involved in. Okay. I knew that I liked writing and reporting and being involved in the production of a publication. Okay. But I was definitely figuring out what I was good at, right? Was I a good news reporter? Was I a good breaking news reporter? Was I a features writer? Did I want to be a columnist? I tried out all these identities and all these different kind of styles. I was very much trying to figure out what I was good at and then where I could best to do the thing that I was good at. So I knew I was in the, you know, I felt like I knew I was in the right country, but I didn't know what state I was supposed to be in. Gotcha. Gotcha. So coming back to you, Jen, where and when did you guys end up meeting and coming together and starting your relationship? We met in 2009 on OkCupid. We had both been previously, we had both been in very long relationships. I'd been in an eight-year relationship. Jason had been in a nine-year relationship. And we wow. had come out of those relationships, effectively moved to New York in the wake of those relationships. And both and of you did. Both of us did. Oh, wow. Okay. And started dating. And Jason dated online for about six months before he met me. I was probably single for a year and a half. Okay. And so, you know, by the time that we met each other, I think we definitely had 
a sense of what we were looking for and what we weren't looking for. <laughs> Jason actually plugged into, so we met on OkCupid. He plugged in Jewish journalist into OkCupid. And I was the first person that popped up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, so we are such nerds that he put a, so, you know, this was before swiping. So everyone put a lot of attention, or at least we were looking for people who put attention into their profiles and who knew how to put a sentence together. <laughs> Jason used a semicolon correctly. So I thought, oh my God, that's like some advanced grammar shit. So <laughs> that's I got so a, hot. I, yeah. That's so hot, the semicolon, <laughs> the, the dot and the little. <laughs> so anyway, so we, we need to get a drink and we did and we hit it off. And so that's, that's how we, how we got together. And we ended up getting married about two years later. So you guys both moved to New York separately for different reasons and then met each other there. Yeah. 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 And Jen Jen moved earlier. Jen was here for, I guess, a year and a half before I showed up. Okay. And yeah, we both career type moves. Yes. Right. I mean, a combination of career and the ending of a relationship that propelled it. Well, I guess one can impact the other, but yeah, we we both were here for career. You know, I mean, New York is, is really the center of media and we were, we were both chasing that. Okay. Got it. Got it. So where were you in your careers up to this point? So let's start with Jason. Where were you in your career up to this point? Obviously you're doing a bunch of different one-off things for different newspapers, got some stories accepted or, or whatever that process looks like. And then you started taking some jobs with some of these other publications. Where were you at specifically in your career? Oh yeah. So by the time I moved to New York, I had worked for two community newspapers and then Boston Magazine. And so, and I was moving to New York to work at Men's Health. So I had, okay. I had gotten my first national magazine job and if it was, so it was a big break, right? It basically felt like my big break. And I came in as a, as a somewhat junior editor. So you know, you're, you're kind of occupying that funny space where you're like, you're like in the big time, but you're also like small time, yeah. <laughs> small time in the big time. Yeah. You have and the awesome office, but you walk by everybody to go to your little cubicle type thing or I had men's health at the time. Most people were in offices at the way that the, okay. the office was structured. So I had this tiny, I mean, it was really tiny. Like it, it was the size of a desk, right? I mean, it was nothing, mm-hmm. but it was a tiny little office with no windows, but it had a sliding door and it totally felt like big time to me. You know, I mean, yeah. I just, come from sitting in an open office in Boston Magazine. And now here I am uh, with my own little space at a national... So no, it felt like a really big deal. And so that's so I was staring. I felt like I had... I was still staring up the mountain, right? I mean, I felt I, I had scaled some part of it, right. but it felt like a small part and it felt like a rock could give way and I could easily tumble back down to where I started. But I was... I felt like I had at least made the first big leap. Okay. Okay. And where, where in the timeline is this? Like how old were you at this point? This is 2008. Well, Jen and I met in 2009, but I moved to New York in 2008. So that around. And I, so I was 28, 29 at the time. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then Jen, where were you in your career? Like, were you writing, have you always just been writing novels or where exactly were you? What prompted the move to New York? So I came to New York to go to grad school. That was to go to journalism school. I had previously published a nonfiction book and that actually had did not translate into a career because you publish a book and then you kind of st- have to start over <laughs> with the next thing. Right, right. So I went to journalism school because I was just trying to figure out what my next step was going to be when I met Jason. But what I really wanted to do actually was write fiction. And I hadn't done that professionally. 
And so after journalism school, I decided that what I really wanted to do was to get an MFA in fiction writing because I had a novel idea that I wanted to work on. And the problem was that if you tell people that you know, you're know you a fiction writer or a novelist, they say, but what do you actually do? But <laughs> if you're in school, you can tell them you're in school and then they leave you alone. So, uh, uh, yeah. So I enrolled in the MFA and that was at the point where I met Jason. And a year after I met Jason, I ended up finishing that book that I had been, I'd been working on that book for many years and I sold it while I was still in the MFA program. So that's, and then from there I did another book and and then Mr. Nice Guy is yeah, my fourth yeah. book and Jason's debut. What does it take? I mean, to you say that you sold that book. What does it take to do that? I mean, I have a lot of friends who are in the nonfiction space who write a lot of, you know, personal development, self-help, obviously just with the podcast, I have a lot of different authors that come on the show, but I don't talk to a lot of novelists, like people that are writing actual like fiction stories. What does it take to actually sell a novel to a publisher? Sure. So to sell a novel to a publisher, most of the time, so first you need an agent. Actually, first you need the, usually first you need the novel or you need at least part of the novel. And then you need to get an agent and the agent will then try to sell the book to a publisher. The thing with nonfiction is that you sell a proposal. So you've done, you know, you've done a lot of work, but you've only done a small fraction of the work that you would need to do when you get that advance for the book. Whereas a novel, you actually have to write the entire thing before you're able to sell it. So that's basically what happened with me and Jason. We, you know, when it came time to try to sell Mr. Nice Guy, we had actually, we'd already written like a, you know, a full draft and done many rounds of revisions on it Mm -hmm. before our agent then approached publishers to sell it. Wow. So, you know, it was a three-year process of writing Mr. Nice Guy before we actually got a deal. That's crazy. So, so what, what do they look for? Like what separates, like what would make them say yes to one versus yes to another one? Is it, does it have a lot to do with connections and who you know, or is it more like, hey, this is really solid material or kind of a combination of the two? Like what are the criteria? It's a couple things. It's your agent being able to send the book to the right editors. Your agent should know, should really have a feel for what specific editors like and what they're looking for. So you have to target the right people. And the author really has nothing to do with that. That's all between the agent and the editors. Hmm. The book... I mean, I was going to say the book has to be good, but that's actually not true. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. I I think our book is good. And I think that we sold it because it is good. Sometimes if you have a really phenomenal idea and the book sucks, they'll buy it anyway because they think they can make a lot of, you know, either your editor can yeah. rewrite it or, or they can make a lot of money off of it. I think in our case, it was a combination of a great idea. Like, you know, so two people every week sleep together and then critically review each other's performance in a national magazine. Yeah. Bam. Like that's the premise. Very intriguing. Yeah. Intriguing, yeah. right? It's a little salacious. And then you've got it's written by this husband and wife couple, right. which is also intriguing. So it's mm-hmm. a married couple writing about sex and infusing the book with their own story. So like that's part of that's also what they're looking for. They're looking to see to what extent the authors are marketable and to what extent 
they already have a platform. So in this case, you know, like our personal story, right? Having been in these long-term relationships and then done just like crazy amounts of, of dating in New York City and then ourselves being young and ambitious and coming up in the media world. I mean, all of that is in the book. We put in so much of our own personal relationship experiences, dating experiences, like all the ridiculous, crazy stuff that happened to us working in these magazines, the parties that people would throw, the extravagance of it, the personalities of the editors. I mean, we did not hold anything back. We threw all of that in. And, you know, I think that that is part of the selling point for the book. And then of course Mm -hmm. the platform. So, you know, certainly having one author who is an editor in chief of a national magazine helps. But, you know, I've also, I've published a lot in the New York Times, Washington Post, and I've got, you know, my own connections. So it's kind of a package. And if if the book is good, then that helps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I would say, I mean, I think if you could summarize that very good and complex answer into a couple of words, it would be, they want a book that they think will sell. And it's that can it can sell for many many reasons right i mean we all we've all seen books that are not very good but that were clearly purchased because the author is famous yeah. and therefore it's going to sell you know the less famous you are the better the book has to be <laughs> <In a way. laughs> yeah but you know and this is so it's not you know you would ask about like connections it's not necessarily connections but it's connections in as much as those connections can be leveraged for sales so they will like you know if, if listeners are considering how to whether to sell a book, like, you know, anybody, you know, who could get you attention or could drive sales, anything like that. You put that right there in the proposal to sell the book, because this yeah. is, you know, this is also, it's in, it's ultimately a business and you're making a product. And you got to sell that product. Gotcha. Gotcha. So tell me about your experience, Jason. We'll, and we'll, we'll kind of get into the, I mean, this show is called Build Your Network. So we're definitely going to talk about networking, connecting. And I know that you both are probably fantastic at that to get to the positions that you are right now. So we'll definitely touch on that in just a few if you're listening to this. But I want to see your perspective, Jason, on writing this novel. So it's called Mr. Nice Guy. Jen just gave us a fantastic synopsis of the book. Can you tell us what it was like to go from being editor-in-chief entrepreneur and all these different magazines that you worked with to going into a fiction novel. Yeah, it was very, very different. And we wrote... So it took us three years to write the book and wow. we sold it last summer, which is to say that I, for the majority of the experience of producing the book, I was not actually at Entrepreneur. I was at other magazines. But it was... So I had the idea for this novel in my 20s. I, I would guess like age 25, I, had, I was corresponding with a sex columnist and it gave me this idea. It was just sort of like almost a thought experiment. What would happen if two people slept together and then had to critically review each other's performance? Like, what would that be? Who would those people be? What would it seem like? What would it happen to them? Like, what happens when people are honest about the thing nobody's totally honest about? And that was... An intriguing idea. I told people about it. Everyone was like, oh, that's a great idea. I just didn't know how to write it. I just, mm. I'm just, I'm not a fiction writer. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I'm not, I can't do it. So I put it on the shelf, you know, because it was, it turned out to be right idea, wrong time. Yeah. And right idea, right time happened to be when I married a woman who knows how to write novels, really critical. It helps, <laughs> it's a big shortcut. And then when Jen was looking for a new project, I'd suggested that she write this thing that I'm never going to write. And she suggested that we do it together. So, you know, I approached it really 
just searching for what skills I could bring to the table. I knew that the actual character development and the scene writing and all the kind of novelly, really novelly stuff was going to come from Jet. But I am good at thinking through things like I'm good at thinking through things logically. I feel like I'm good at Jen, you can tell me if you think that's true. But like, <laughs> you know, when we Jen and I will sit around with scenarios for other books, other ideas, we kicked around a lot. And I feel like I'm pretty good at taking the set of information and then imagining what would happen. You know, like, okay, if a character is going to be doing this and then this happens, like what would happen next? What would logically happen? And so I felt like we plotted the whole thing out together and I felt like I was able to tap into some kind of skill that I had that was really underutilized. And so that was a lot of fun. I wrote the columns that the characters write. Jen wrote the, almost all the scenes. There were a couple scenes that, that we set aside for me to write that I did. And then we edited each other's work. So I think that the key to working together with anybody is, and particularly true when it's somebody really close to you, is distinct roles and responsibilities. And so we went into it pretty well aware of what each other's strengths were and where we would be able to best contribute to the project. And so, so it never, you know, it, it challenged me a lot. Yeah. I wouldn't say it surprised me. I felt, I feel like we had a pretty good idea of what was required to make this happen. And then it was just a matter of executing and pushing past the many, many times when I did not want to work on this thing because I was exhausted and Jen would have to keep shoving me towards the finish line. Yeah, kick you into high gear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, it was just really crazy. That's like, that's a really valuable thing to have in a partnership. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And I'm extremely, I'm an extremely motivated person. I have at any one time, like eight different projects going on. I was going to say, well, Uh, that's the big thing is you got a ton of stuff on your plate Yeah, to try to sift through. But the challenge with this one was that I I think, I think in particular that it just took, it required a different part of my brain that I don't use as often. And so it was a little harder to access. And I think that sometimes just made it a little more exhausting. Like I know how to sit down and just bang out a magazine story. I do that all day. I do it every day. But to sit down and write like a scene in a novel, it almost felt like booting up a different software program in my head. And that could be really hard. Yeah, totally. Totally. So coming into the part where it's the fun part now, now you got some copies of the book and you're ready to start selling. What would, if somebody came to you, Jason and uh, Jen, you, you gave a great synopsis of the book already. So Jason, what would you say, like, how would you summarize the book in 30 seconds? <laughs> well, I mean, that thing, that line that we've both used is, has become the elevator pitch, right? And we just repeat that over and over and over again. Each week, two people sleep together and critically review each other's performance in a magazine. So the, I guess the other way to say it is that it's a book about ambition and relationships and honesty and how to possibly balance all of them. Uh, Jen and I have both had experiences in which we were driven by ambition and that ambition at once I think drove us crazy like individual personally like my ambition right, right. has driven me crazy and Jen the same and also has impacted other things that we did I mean but I definitely my prior really a very long prior relationship to Jen was significantly impacted by my ambition like I didn't feel like I was achieving professionally what it was that I was looking for and that absolutely held me back from taking seriously the romantic relationship that I was in. And so we were in a way trying to grapple with a lot of that in the book with these characters. 
And, you know, and sometimes really having characters do things that it almost, it's very interesting writing fiction. You, you can have characters almost talk to you. Like, you know, I would like have the female character say something to the male character that really some female character should have said to me at some point. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that's like a really interesting thing to do because nobody knows that that's what's happening right. in the writing process. But that was, certainly was more than 30 seconds, but that's what the book is to me. Yeah, that's awesome. So you guys are clearly a power couple. You're both killing it, both doing things on your own and together now. Do you have any advice on navigating entrepreneurship, ambition, and then also having a balanced life and, and a good relationship? Jen? <laughs> no, it's just such a, such a big question. I mean, I think Jason alluded to this earlier in terms of working with a partner, I think it can be really great for a relationship and really healthy for a relationship. But I think, you know, whether it's in a creative pursuit or an entrepreneurial pursuit, I think it's really important that each person has their defined roles Mm -hmm. so that you kind of know what you are responsible for and you feel, you know, some kind of power and ownership over, you know, one specific part of it. And then hopefully you're respecting the role that your partner's doing and they're respecting the role that you're doing. So it's allowing you to collaborate, but it's also giving you some freedom to be, be individually creative and to, you know, have some authority over kind of your own domain. And so that was really, I think, key to our success that early on we decided that Jason would write the columns. I would write the narrative and then we would give each other an edit. But we developed the whole thing together and that was a lot of brainstorming and really fun. And that's the other thing. I mean, collaborating on a creative pursuit or professional pursuit with your partner, like it just adds another dimension to what the relationship is. It gives you more things to talk about, more things to think about, you know, at times more things to argue about, but you know, in some ways better to be arguing about this this abstract thing than who's going to do the dishes or whatever. That's awesome. That's It seems like you guys have a fantastic thing going on. And I I want to acknowledge you guys for that. So please, please, please continue putting out all the good stuff that you do into the world. Let's go ahead and shift the conversation a little bit. This is the Build Your Network podcast. And we do talk a lot about connections and how to go about building a network of people around you that will actually push you to be better in your life. Like Jim Rohn always said, you're average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So that's kind of what the show is built on. Like really trying to show people that if you're not around people that are making you better, you got to change your circle if you really want to get to that next level. And it seems like you guys have done a fantastic job of doing that. So Jason, coming into the magazine world and starting with Men's Health and then working your way up, working your way up, working your way up, and now to be editor-in-chief at Entrepreneur Magazine, can you talk to me about how important it was to cultivate good, strong relationships during that period of time? Oh, it was critically important. I can't stress it enough. And I thought, well, I, you know, it is funny. I mean, I'm trying to think of it, whether how conscious I was of it. Well, here's what I knew. Going into, and and actually I would back it up to Boston Magazine, which was really the first time that I had access to what I felt like was a network of peers who were just as driven as me. Hmm, Prior to that, at these newspapers, I was encountering people who, you know, I think either they may not have made a, wanted to make a career of it, or they were very happy where they were, right? Hmm. And, And which is fine, but it wasn't my stop. And then I got to Boston Magazine and it was the first time that I was surrounded by people who were also young and hungry and ready to just bust ass. And like the only reason that they were at Boston Magazine was to bust ass and get yeah. out of there, frankly, and get onto something else. And 
I was, I cannot recall if I was like searching for that before I found it. But by the, when I found it, I definitely, it was like nourishing. I mean, I was so relieved to have that group and having that group made me want more of that group, you know? And I, and I remember, yeah. I remember being living in Boston and noticing how all the writers who are at the cool, big magazines, the New York magazine writers and the GQ writers, and the New Yorker, they all seem to know each other. You know, and they were, and they like, they were all communicating with each other on social media or blogs before that. And, and it just seemed like something was happening that they all, they were all, they had all connected. And I was really, I was jealous of that. And also really thankful for the few friends that I had who we hadn't yet gone on to anything big, but I knew that we would. Yeah. And then as I progressed, I found that I related most to people who shared that drive and ambition, that the people who I wanted to spend my time with, who made me feel better about myself and who I loved, I love to associate with people who I thought were doing amazing work. These were people who were just, just as driven as me. And, you know, and I, and I count Jen among that, I mean, that very much was the initial spark of our relationship. And it drove me to build real, like this was not a networking thing. I don't really like networking. I don't go handing out business cards, right? But what it drove me to every time somebody said, hey, I'm going to go out to you know get some drinks with friends who work at this magazine or whatever. I'm like, I am in. And we, Jen and I, uh, we're very, very regulars at, and this is in the book too. There are these things that we call, we call them booze events. <laughs> They're basically like some publicist for Johnny Walker or what, you know, whatever, some brands will, they throw these parties all the time. I mean, you know, yeah. you get onto the invite lists and you could fill your weeks with them. And what are they for? It's not clear. Like they just get a bunch of journalists into a room and they give them liquor and food and, and like God knows what the point is. But <laughs> it's like we a good deal. It's a great deal. Great we all deal. stand. Yeah, it's a great deal. We all stand around just being like, "Why are we here? Like, why does?" But we went to those pretty much. It was like every night for years, and I did that. I mean, for me, it was one. It was because it was fun. Is you know access to these cool event spaces in New York and all that stuff, and and two also, especially when you're on a small journalism budget, uh, having access to free food and booze. And stuff. <laughs> right. But also, the number of people that I met there was so huge. Like, yeah. I just kept meeting other people in my field and people who, you know, some I would stay in touch with and become friends with. And some I would just, we would stay in touch by email or follow each other on Twitter or whatever. But like whatever it was, I was just gathering that thing until I got to the point where I had the thing that I saw everyone else have when I was in Boston. Or like I knew that I, Jen and I can pick up the New York Times on basically any day and see names of people that we, that we're friends with. That is yeah. so cool. Like that, that never gets old. It's amazing. so <laughs> amazing to have that. Those people, they inspire us and they make us want to keep up with them. You know, right, like it right. feels like, I don't feel like it's a competition. I feel like we're all, we're all just motivating each other. And I never feel competitive with those people. I just feel like, I feel like amazed and, and thrilled that they're my friends. Yeah. Yeah. So two things I want to bring out on that. One of them is the idea that, so we all can agree that your environment is what shapes you. The, the problem is not a lot of people will take responsibility and say that I decide what my environment is, right? So my environment is what makes me who I am, but I am the person who decides what my environment is. So this is something I want to acknowledge you for, Jason, because because this is something that you did, right? So you were in, an, in these local newspapers and you were in an environment that did not make you better, did not support your ambition or your drive. And so instead of just sitting there and complaining and being like, well, this is never going to work. I should just do something different and blah, 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 whatever all the other excuses that everybody else tells themselves, you decided to change that environment. You get into the Boston Magazine and now 
you're in an environment that's actually pushing you, making you better. And you're like, wow, this is addicting. Like, this is exactly what I want. And then all you do is continue to up that environment, up that environment. And then when you get to New York and, and then you and Jen find these events to go to every single night and with all these other journalists, you could have decided to stay home and Netflix and chill, right? So you could have done those things, but you decided that environment is what shapes me to be the person that I am. And so I know that I'm in control of that. And you put yourself in a position to succeed in, in, in those environments. So I think that that's, that's really important. But you also touched on something else that I want to talk on for a second, because this is the reason that this show exists. What you said at the very beginning of that whole story about how like you don't like networking, like you don't want to go hound at a bunch of business cards. You just want to like go hang out, build some relationships. That is like my message. Like, like when you said it, it got me all fired up because like, that's what I'm all about is like getting people to stop thinking about it in such a transactional way. Like, look, networking is the same as going out and just building relationships. The problem is most people don't look at it that way. They go, oh yeah, I go network with a bunch of business cards with business colleagues. And then I go to the bar and build relationships with people. And it's like, no, no, no. Stop putting them in different departments. Like They're the same thing. And the reason that you guys can pick up a copy of the New York Times and flip through and be like, I know them, I know them, I know them, I know them is because you're building real genuine relationships. You don't just go to a cocktail party and throw up a bunch of business cards all over everybody and hope you secure some business from it. So fantastic, fantastic stuff. Jen, can you talk about how important, how crucial it's been for you to constantly be worrying about who you surround yourself with? Absolutely. So I've got two, you know, two great kind of networking stories that, you know, directly show how directly illustrate what you just said that what a lot of people think of as networking isn't actually yeah. <laughs> isn't actually networking. So, totally. so it's networking from like the 70s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when I was in 2006, I so I was living in New York. I'd kind of just come to New York and I, you know, I was interested in writing fiction, but I hadn't really, you know, seriously em- embarked on it. And so I signed up for a novel and the intro to novel writing at NYU, it was a continuing education class. It was me and like, you know, a bunch of middle-aged professionals who were coming after work. And one of the, not everybody was middle-aged, but there were a bunch of them. And one of the people, well, so then a bunch, a bunch of the women in the class, you know, we all kind of liked what we were, the others were doing. And so then we decided after the class ended to continue having a small writing workshop just with the six of us. Well, one of those women, it turned out, was a literary agent who also was just writing for fun. And mm. she ended up being my literary agent. And, you know, I didn't even know until halfway through that she was an agent. And in fact, it was actually a couple, you know, after this writing class happened, we kind of lost touch for a little while. And then I ran into her. I was, I was in grad school and I went to a reading and it turned out a literary reading. And it turned out that she was the agent for the person who was reading. <laughs> and, and we, you know, we connected. It had been an, about a year and a half. And she said, Hey, are you still working on that novel? And I said, yeah. And she's like, let's get coffee and meet and talk about it. So that was how I ended up with my agent who sold my first two novels. And again, it was all, you know, yes, there was some serendipity, but it was also just kind of following through on those developing relationship. Because when you create that network, when you're surrounding yourself with people who are in your field or striving, you know, you guys are all kind of striving toward the same thing. Like it builds upon each other. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. agent that Jason and I worked with for Mr. Nice Guy happened in the craziest way. We were coming back from, we were supposed to be flying from London to New York 
Our flight got canceled. We were on a bus to the hotel and ended up talking with a guy, a friendly looking guy who was sitting on the bus. And it turned out that we both lived in the same neighborhood on the same street. And we were all writers. And so we ended up becoming friends with him. He writes children's books. So like not even the same type of thing, but we made sure to follow up with him. When we got back to New York, we started hanging out. And then literally like two years later, when we were looking for an agent for our book, you know, we were just talking to him about it. And he's like, oh, there's a woman at my agency who I think would be perfect for your book. I'll make the connection. And And that's how that happened. You know, that's why you guys are good at this though right? Because most people look at networking, like we're talking about, they look at it very transactional and they always have an agenda, right? Which is why they're not actually good at networking because they only go to events where there's potential to actually get business from somebody or get a job from somebody or get something from somebody. And then when they're not in that situation, they don't treat everybody else with the respect that they would treat those people at that event, right? So they wouldn't have started talking to the guy on the bus next to them because they don't care because they don't think that guy has any sort of transactional value to bring to them. And then he turns out didn't have any transactional value to bring to you guys until like two years later, randomly when you were mentioning the fact that you were writing a book. So like that's the whole idea of this entire podcast is get people to stop thinking so much about, here's my business card, here's my business card, here's my business card, and start thinking about people and building real, genuine relationships with actual people. So we're coming close to the end here. I want to just get one quick tip from both of you guys on how somebody listening to this right now would be able to just be a little bit better at this whole idea of building relationships. Just one tip, something that they can implement into their life immediately. What would that one tip be? We'll start with Jen and then we'll go to Jason. So I would say it's really important to keep following up with people. You know, let's say there's people in your life who may not be your closest friends in the world, but you, you know, encounter them through some kind of social situation or some kind of event. Just, you know, every once in a while, drop them a line, ask them how they're doing, check up, get a cup of coffee. It'll just kind of broaden. It it helps to broaden your worldview. It helps to broaden your network. And you really just don't know how, you know, down the road, you might need something or be looking for something. And then remember, oh yeah, that person, you know, last time we met up or we're chatting, we were talking about this, like, you know, they might, you know, maybe they'll have some, have some advice for me. And then when you call that person up, it won't be totally out of the blue because you already will have established a connection. Yeah. Love it. Love it. You got to build the well before you're thirsty. 100%. Jason. So this builds off of what Jen said a little bit. So I, uh, here's my theory on life. <laughs> my theory on life is that the number one thing that everybody wants is to feel heard. Mm. Number one thing. Everybody wants to feel heard. And the more that you, you enable people to feel heard, that you show them that you heard them, the more they love you and feel attached to you and, you know, and ultimately want to help you, which is not to say that you should do it just because you're looking for help, right? Like that already defeats the purpose. But, Correct, right. but here's, how, here's what I do. Here's, how I, here's one way in which I, I build that into my days. Now, we have a lot of friends and they produce a lot of work. And it would be impossible, frankly, for us to kind of consume and watch everything that everybody's doing. But I try my damnedest to like read or listen to or whatever the stuff that seems to matter most to our friends. You know, if our friend wrote an article and they tweet it and they seem to be really proud of it, I read it and then I email them and I tell them it was awesome. If they showed up on a TV segment and they put it on Facebook, I watch it and I 
text them and I say it was awesome. Yeah, I yeah. love, and I do that because I know it makes them feel good, but also frankly, because I'm really proud of my friends. Like I'm genuinely proud of my friends and I want to feel supportive of them. But I know that for me, when I put something out into the world and a friend of mine sees it and spends the time with it and then tells me that they like it, that makes me feel really good. And I want to do that for other people. And I realize that most of your listeners may not be in a career in which their friends are kind of producing work that way, but your Mm -hmm. friends are doing something, right? They're whatever it is, they're they're involved in some organization or they got a promotion and they put it on LinkedIn, whatever the hell it is, people are always doing things that they're proud of. And the more that you can acknowledge that and find some way to be a part of it, even just by celebrating it, the more people just feel close to you. And then, yeah. And then like, again, you don't do this because there's some ROI, but frankly, two years later, when you're looking for a book agent and then that person happens to have the idea for the book (laughs) agent, that's really useful. Right, (laughs) right, exactly. So you get it, you know, you should get it both. You should get it because you really like the person and you really like, like supporting people, but also because when you have a community that supports each other, good things happen. Yeah, totally. Love it. So so much awesome, awesome stuff here, guys. We've covered so many different topics and there's a lot of different value in this conversation. Let's go ahead and move on to the last segment really quickly. Something I like to call the random round. Just a few really quick, random questions with quick, random answers. Jen, we'll let ladies go first and you can answer first and then we'll get an answer from Jason. You guys sure. ready? Yeah. What profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt? I would love to be an actor. Jason? Mm. Yeah. A musician just for the awesome power of standing in front of a huge crowd and like rocking a guitar. Like that always seemed really powerful. Yeah, totally. Actually, those two are like my top two answers. So it's really funny that both of you guys picked like my top two. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk with them for an hour, who would it be and why? This is really tough. No, Jason, you go first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm really fascinated by cultures and civilizations that that are so far in the past that we don't really understand what they were like. So like this would be a translation dependent, but I would love to sit down with somebody from like the dawn of writing, you know, like the Mesopotamia, the cuneiform writers and just hear what they're like more than any famous person whose name we've heard of. I would just love the average random person from some long ago civilization. Yeah. You know what? I would probably just sit down with my grandmother who passed away. Hmm about two decades ago now. Yeah, that's who I'd sit down with. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? It's really a mix. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also read quite a bit. So those would be my my two main ones. Oh, and TV. I watch a lot of TV. Give me one of the podcasts that you listen to a lot, besides Build Your Network, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really enjoying right now a podcast called The Nod on Gimlet, which is about African-American culture, but it's really like narrative based. It's just really interesting stories. It's it's a world that obviously like I am not being a black person myself. I don't know so much about, but the hosts are just really engaging and it's just fascinating and I love it. Awesome. Jason? Yeah, I if podcasts. I mean, I like Jen consume media in many forms, but the world that I'm most excited about and most like sort of think about the most is is podcasting. And the, the podcast I I have to recommend Jen knows what's coming because I keep talking about this show and she thinks it's ridiculous, but I love it, which is this thing called Everything is Alive. It's interviews with inanimate objects. So it's like a sit-down interview with a bar of soap or with a lamppost. And so they have like an actor embody the object and sort of think through what the logic would be of that object. I just think it's so clever. 
Interesting. And then you also have your own podcast as well, Jason. Tell, give me like a quick synopsis of that. I do. Yes. Yeah, so super, super quick. The one for entrepreneur is called Problem Solvers. It's a weekly show. Each episode is about an entrepreneur solving an unexpected problem in their business. And then the other one is a personal project. It's called Pessimists Archive. Each episode is about the moment that something new was introduced into the world, some new technology or innovation, and why everybody freaked out about it. So the Walkman, the car, the bicycle. The next episode that we're doing is the novel. You can guess how that was inspired. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. So our morning routine is that one of us gets up with our three and a half year old. The other one gets to sleep in for (laughs) an extra hour or so. And uh, we give him his, we brush help him brush his teeth, give him his breakfast. He entertains himself with a video. And then we kind of get ourselves together shower, dressing. And then Jason gets our son out the door to school. And I either go to Pilates or I set up at the kitchen table where I'm sitting right now and get right to work. Yeah. So that that basically speaks for my my morning routine also. Although I will say, I will say that uh, because... So Jen is pregnant and... and Awesome. Congrats. Thank you. Because of that, I took the lead on getting up at 6.30 in the morning and I've been letting her sleep in more often. And I got to say, though I do not enjoy waking up at 630 in the morning. I actually do really appreciate the extra time in the day. I usually I use it to go through emails, kind of take care of some of the quick tasks that I can, knowing that my kid our kid is going to interrupt me every 10 minutes. And that's been that's actually been really useful. I kind of like those additional hours. What is your go-to pump up song? Oh, do you have one, Jen? I have one. What's yours? Underdog by Spoon. I mean, I don't like, one out. I don't need to out. turn to it very often anymore. Like I definitely, um, there were years when if I was heading to a job interview or heading to, you know, like before I got really comfortable with public speaking, if I was going to go do a speaking thing, I would put underdog by spoon on as I was uh, like on the subway heading there. And it's the perfect pump up song. I put on, I like to put on Aretha quite a bit. Mm. Chain of Fools is a good one. Got it. Got it. Well, what is something that you are not very good at? Algebra, <laughs> drawing. <laughs> Jason? Uh, uh, home improvement. Uh-huh. If something breaks in the home, I will be, I will be the one to try to tackle it, but I and don't... Break it further. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh man, that's funny. Okay, so as we get everything wrapped up here, guys, what's one place online where we'll be able to find you the most? And then also tell us where we can pick up a copy of your new book. Well, you can find... So the book is called Mr. Nice Guy. You can find it online either at Amazon or through the site of your favorite independent bookstore, which I would advocate for, or Barnes & Noble. Wherever you find books. Wherever you find books, you can find Mr. Nice Guy. And we've got a a website, which is mrniceguynovel.com. And then Jason, you want to share? Yeah, sure. I should also say, and your local bookstore. Right, it's not just and your local It'll be everywhere, and uh, it also there's also an audiobook. So if you want to, uh, we we are actually reading in the audio. Yeah, we're in it. Oh no, we're way. reading a awesome. lot of sexy stuff, so it's really embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a, it was an amazing experience being in a professional studio doing that. Yeah, so so Mr. Nice Guy, and then um, I am more uh, active on social media than Jen is. So uh, so if you want to reach out, I'm at Hey Pfeiffer H E Y F E I F E R on Twitter or Instagram, or uh, you know JasonPfeiffer.com, uh, where you can find more information about the book and all sorts of other stuff I do. 
Perfect. Perfect. Thanks so much, guys, for coming on. If you want to check out their novel, which I highly recommend, make sure you go pick up a copy of Mr. Nice Guy at your local bookstore or online, or the audio version is the one that sounds most intriguing to me. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but thank you guys so much for coming on. I had a blast chatting with both of you. Oh, thanks. Hey, for thank you. Me. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. You hear my guests and I talk a lot about masterminds on the show because they're literally what I attribute most of the new quality relationships in my life to. If this is something that you are interested in at all, then hit me up and let's chat to see if you'd be a good fit for my mastermind, Build Your Network Dynasty. Just head over to buildyournetwork.co slash dynasty to fill out an application and we'll talk soon. Have a fantastic rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.